0: Can you trust blogs anymore? They're so chock full of just random advertising. You can't trust them. They're part of networks now. And I don't know. I, I bought a pillow the other day and I got, I couldn't tell if I was looking at a, at a proper review site or some stand-up review site that some manufacturer put up there to say, Hey, our pillows rated number one best in 2017.
1: Yeah. And what if this blog happens to be, yeah, we cover, we cover, uh, you know, beds and pillows and things. Um, yeah, but we're real honest. We do take we do take advertising from the company, from the products that we cover, but we we're still honest about our reviews. Yeah, <clears throat> it's like I listen to some. I won't name any names, but like there's a podcast I've listened to that they kind of talk about cloud computing and stuff. And they recently started taking advertising from like DataDog and some of these other cloud mm. service companies. I'm just like,
0: yeah. I mean. <laughs> But I mean, you can't fault people for trying to make money and try to, you know, make. I a don't.
1: Living. I don't. It just, um, it definitely compromises their
0: product. So where's the balance? So what do you do to to yep. monetize yet still, still maintain your integrity?
1: I mean, I guess people have to make the decision, whatever decision they want. I mean, obviously, it does affect your integrity. The question is, is you know, do people do people care or not? I don't know. Only the people who listen or read or whatever can make that decision. But it's unfortunate sometimes when it happens. I yeah. wish there was a better, well, some of these podcasts, speaking of which, I guess we'll go ahead and, I mean, we're recording, so I guess this is the show. Oh, um, okay. <laughs> so I've listened to the, uh, you know, on and off, like the No Agenda podcast for, gosh, I don't know. I think maybe since, maybe after its first year, I don't think I listened from the beginning.
0: Hmm. Um, I, did, I think I listened a few times.
1: And they have, they have an interesting show. It's, it's funny. Um, it's kind of long and it. Gets kind of crazy, so I actually don't, and I just don't have time to listen to it as much anymore. But I, I do; it's in my feed, and if I have time, I will I'll listen to it. There's a lot of shows I have that are like that. I've, I've got them in my feed and my pod catcher, which is um, Overcast, mm-hmm. and it'll download them all. But a lot of them I'll just if I'm if I'm already behind, because I've gotten to where I like to stay up to date. Yeah, I, I don't because some of my like especially now that we're in football season, I want to be up to date, like on the football podcast I listen to mm. because they're so. Temporal, and you know what I mean. like yeah. the, the the content is very um, yeah. Listen short to shelf stuff life. That's, What's the word? Yeah, for that? Perishable.
0: Perishable. Yeah. I mean, I, I do listen to podcasts where they're they're almost daily, and it's like eh, after a week that that content is probably stale. So I'm gonna
1: yeah. So I'll I'll skip past a lot of these things, and if I have time, I'll listen to them. But I I noticed the other day that um, the most recent
0: No Agenda episode was seven and a half hours long. Seven and a half hours. Yep. Was it like one of those live streams that they decided to turn into a Podcast? It was their 10th
1: anniversary episode. Ugh. And I don't think I'm exaggerating here when I say that because I skipped past all of this. Um, at least two, if not three hours of the show, of that seven and a half hour show, was them just simply reading the names of people who donated and the amounts and like their kind of short message or whatever they sent with it. I mean, this, wow. I think, I think No Agenda mm-hmm. might do. Somewhere around a half a million or more a year. So they've, you know, they're, and, and they're kind of one of these poster children for, um, you know, like monetizing podcasts in mm-hmm. a non advertising way. And they, that's really like their, you know, their, uh, one of their values they hold dearly is that they're, right. you know, and I actually, I mean, I've totally uh, sympathized, or I don't sympathize, what's the word? I, that, I get that. It, it makes a lot of sense. But, um, yeah, they, you know, gosh, they they spent three hours, I mean, it had to be three hours with, and I'm, and I'm just like, wow, that, what an example of taking the traditional advertising model, the way that you can make a business work, mm-hmm. and turning it completely on its head and turning it into a user, what would you call that, um, you know, listener. listener supported Listener-supported. Yes, listen. Yeah, listener-sponsored. And people, you know, there's Patreon thing, a lot of. A lot of places do that. I don't think No Agenda does Patreon. I think they—I don't know why.
0: But still, I mean, who's going to sit there and listen to that? It's—it's mean, it's not like each one was an advertisement, right? It was just, hey, thanks, thanks, Jeremy for for your contributions and for the nice words you said.
1: I don't know. Um, some the when they that that segment that I think there's a couple of them where they read the the donors and mm-hmm. the like the amounts and their messages. It can actually be funny and entertaining the way they do it. I mean, well, we the way re- they we do it. Our reviews. That's true, but I feel like those are, I don't know if we make those funny or not. I, I don't know. I, I don't. I
0: don't. of them we try,
1: they're kind of entertaining. I, I really <laughs> get concerned though, that that's a little bit too much navel gazing to the point that like, I do skip past this stuff when other podcasts do this. Hmm. I just, I don't have time. I've got my feet. I already know that I'm not going to get through my feet. Maybe you have too much in your feed. Just like people are probably doing right now with us because we're not talking about Salesforce. I can hear Jody M right now singing. <laughs> when are they And you know what? Sorry Jody, but we're about to talk about beer too. <laughs> <laughs> you know, but whatever. It's not like we uh we we don't well, we, we are don't pe- re- we are don't pe-
0: run this podcast. We are people <laughs> with other lives and other interests than no? just Salesforce yeah, or right. cloud computing. And if we
1: and if we d- if this was something that was part of our business and our income and we monetize it, then I would be, absolutely, I'd be down to like, I I wouldn't want to spend 10 seconds on something that wasn't like serving our, the people who wanted to, you know, help support the show.
0: Yeah, but I don't know. I don't know that that a show, well, I I don't know. I guess it depends on the listener, but I don't know that a show that just is very dry and cuts to the chase of features and and how-tos and all that kind of stuff is all that interesting. Is it? I don't know. I, I mean, mean it, most of the podcasts I follow that are interesting, it's, I, I follow it not so much, I mean, I do follow it because I enjoy the content, but I also follow it because I enjoy the personality, the person speaking and their personality and their interests and hearing about their point of view. Uh, it's it's not this, this kind of just spoon fed listener. It's not like I'm reading an audiobook or something on, you know, or listening to an audiobook. You know, it's, uh, there's a, there's a personality there. There's, yeah. there's a bit of, I don't know, I feel part of the conversation in some way.
1: I I know I and I think when it's the right podcast when it's people whose like personalities I tend to just appreciate or think are funny or interesting it, it works but on other podcasts I don't think it works at all like and I have no idea if it works on ours this is again we could be boring the crap out of people right now <laughs> anyway well you so we uh, we were gone for a week we skipped a week yeah because you were out of town, I was out of town. visiting family and stuff Yep. so you're back I'm back what anything uh, new and exciting what are you working on. Anything
0: cool? Or no, nothing second? really. I mean, I, I'm just continuing to work on stuff I've been working on. I thought I was going to have a lot more time than I did while I was away. I, I don't know why I do that to myself. I always think I I'm like, going to have... I
1: feel like I could just play... I'm going to record... I'm gonna, actually, I'm going to go cut that out of the audio. I'm just going to play that back every week so you don't have to say that. I know. I
0: always think I have more time than I do. What's the definition of insanity? Doing the same thing and expecting different results or something like that? I know. I, I guess because I'm... I'm I, I know that that my business, my livelihood depends on trading those dollars for hours type situation. And so always that,
1: that really screws with your mentality, doesn't it? It, it does. Because and so everything I always feel like, everything, I, everything I, I'm I'm scared to take a little road trip with some friends to a brewery, you know, up the road or something. Cause I'm like, oh man, that's that that, that took an hour and a half. That was this much money. I'm like, yeah. I hate that.
0: Yeah, and this was this was a family thing. This was a family kind now of another downside thing. of
1: going by the hour. Yeah.
0: And Don't and so bill this, hours. this was a family medical thing. And so I wanted to be there for it and um you know, like, like I thought, you know, okay, I'll be sitting there waiting half the time, so let me let me I'll work on my computer, which I kinda did for a few for, for a few hours and then, you know, during during the recovery period and everything, I thought I thought I'd have more time. But I didn't. I was I was really focused on on the person and, and their needs and what they needed to do. So I didn't have as much time I as mean, I thought I mean, is it, it such
1: was. a secret you can't say who this was? Already know one day?
0: it was my father, okay. but I don't I'm yeah. not gonna talk about his condition. No,
1: no, I'm like just that, I'm but, just saying who who it was. I mean it's yeah. no big deal. You went to see your dad.
0: Yeah, I went to see my dad.
1: Um. Yeah, and and that's the other thing. I always think I'm going to be able to get more work done when I'm traveling somewhere, or even when it's on business. I'm like, oh, I'll just be able to work in my hotel room, and whatever. And I just I never get very much work done. Yeah. And I see somebody? I can remember being at um at Trailhead. Was it called track <laughs> <laughs> DX X. is it DX? <laughs> <laughs> I think it's Trailhead DX. I, I can't stop myself from saying Trailhead X. And I'm just sitting, I'm, I'm sitting in a session, I'm sitting next to Roger Mitchell, and I'm just, I, I think I have my computer open, I can't remember, and I I was trying to get something done, but I couldn't focus, because the guy's talking, I look up at Roger, and he's just like pounding out code and like building stuff, I'm just like, I I, I can't, which is also, why I have to work in a quiet office by myself, like, co-working would never work with me.
0: Is it because we're old farts? I, think He's a young always, guy, is
1: not, I just think it's I think it's how your brain works. Some people can be in an open floor plan, right? With everyone's walking by talking and playing ping pong and they can just get work done.
0: See, that's that I I still think that's because we're old. I mean, think about, I think think about think our careers, it our early on careers. I mean, we'd lock we'd work day and night, middle of the middle of the night type stuff, locked up in some room with very little distractions. But and yeah, now but, now all of a sudden there's all these open floor plans at work and and beanbags and conferences and things that you, you're forced to deal with more distractions than, than, say, we did when we started out. But you said it just a minute ago, when when you were young
1: and you were said you were locked up in your room working on it. That's that's the key, though. I was locked up in a room. It was quiet. I was by myself. Yeah. Some people... But, I mean, back
0: in the day, programmers had their own offices
1: because they needed a focus. A, well, a lot of times they still do. I mean, there's there's still... There, I mean, I know that's an ongoing debate, like the open floor plan versus private offices, but a lot of companies have... And this I think the, that pendulum... Swings back and forth all the time, but you know um, the Fog Bugs, Joel Spolsky guy. He's he's famous for his writing and and their policy on um, having private offices. They they have they certainly have a lot of open space and shared space, and people can get together mm. and work together. And you know you can kind of have your information radiators and all that stuff. But people do have private offices for when they just need to get their head down and get some work done and focus.
0: Which I, I prefer, but I don't know. Maybe that's because I'm old, and I. I also come think from it's the type of work you're
1: doing, right? Some there's certain types of work I'm doing where I can just I can I can listen to music. I can have you know something. I can be sitting in the library, and I can just I gotta pound stuff out. Like it's it's not real uh, intense, like ment- yeah. you know mentally. But some things that are like difficult problems to solve. That's when I have to. I mean, I cannot have any music on. I've got to have the door shut. I don't want anyone around me. I've got to focus on this thing. Just yeah. because of the type of problem.
0: Or sometimes I just need a whiteboard.
1: I do have a small bit of follow-up, um, which is that apparently this conspiracy <laughs> about uh, them Should not... Should I
0: be wearing my tin hat? Uh,
1: my yeah, tin foil hat? probably so. I better put it on. About uh, D- Dreamforce sessions not being recorded was pretty much just... There was not a lot of truth to that.
0: Well, it's, uh, I think there is a... Sp- it's basically gonna be the same, the same, same thing same as always last lecture. year. And yeah. there's, Which is the, the major keynotes and all the major events will be recorded.
1: And a lot of the small ones too. There's just like there's a certain criteria, there's a couple of factors that would cause it not to be recorded, and it's the same as they've always been. So just want to get
0: that out there to clear
1: the air in case we in case we uh have well, we'll, wrong information before. We'll
0: know how how uh, we'll know after the fact, won't we?
1: Probably. Yeah, that's true. That's another thing that I always think I'm going to do, watch Dreamforce videos.
0: I never do. I don't either. <laughs> I mean, I should. Just, well, that's not true. We do. We, I mean, we, we watch the live stream, and then we'll probably end up clipping a bunch of stuff and put that on the show and give our reaction. So I'll watch, I, I mean, I watch the Benioff keynote,
1: but that's, yeah. that's just out of morbid curiosity and entertainment more than it is actual, you know, there's no information there. No. There's going to be no new announcement of any substance or reality.
0: So it's, uh, it's for fun. I don't know. You know, I've got to see what shoes he's wearing, and I feel like I'm out of the loop big time because I I get I hear rumors from other people about things that may or may not be announced, but I I I don't have any like full confirmation from anyone real. I don't know if that if that sounds right. You got your MVP. That's what I mean. Like yeah. I I, don't, I haven't heard anything from the MVP 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 community because I'm not I'm kind of not plugged in at this moment. Well, probably another reason I'm not plugged in is because I've I've cut off social media, so I'm not doing that right now. So that's
1: one thing we were talking about earlier. Do you just want to talk, touch on that briefly? So there's this article, and it was a blog post. I'll try to find it. And let me let me write a note to myself here. And let's see. Um, article about what was it? Cutting feeds out of your life. Oh, so, that's right. Yeah, yeah. So it was all about removing these feeds, and this guy goes into a pretty good description of how. These big social media companies like Facebook and Instagram and what are the other ones? I don't know. Probably even LinkedIn. Instagram. Who knows? What I say? Instagrams? Did I say Instagram? (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) Um, But you know they employ you know doctors and PhDs and psychologists um, to. Oh yeah, because it's a drug. To yes, to implement these techniques that are literally designed to to turn you into an addict. Right. Um, of this service. and I So kept, what is it? They say you get a dopamine hit out of it? Kind of a little probably. adrenaline hit? And, and they do things. And there's all these terms for these. But they, they always make sure they're sandbagging something so that every time, so that when you come back to Facebook 10 minutes later, because you've got that Twitch. And I got to tell you, I have Twitches for various things. Mm-hmm. And, and they, it's real. and But they're always sandbagging some stuff for you so that when you come back to the feed, it's like right there at the top of your feed. And mm-hmm. it, so that you know, yeah. it's, you said a minute ago, like when you're, it's like a like Pavlovian thing. Yeah. You know that if you just, you know, pop open, you know, a new tab and go to Facebook or Twitter or whatever it is, that you're going to, it's going to hit you with what you really wanted. Yeah. And it just trains your brain to always want to go back. And and that's why that's the, I mean, I guess it's just business, but it's kind of this evilness of the algorithmic feeds that yeah. Facebook started years ago. Um, I don't know that Twitter's doing that, although. So Twitter still has, you know, just the chronological timeline, I think, anyway. But they also they've they've tried to do the algorithmic thing with, hey, here's some stuff you missed, or mm-hmm. here's you might find this interesting, which I feel like is a be, is a a good compromise because you again you still have your chronological timeline, and I know some people find those you might have missed this or this might be interesting they find that annoying. But, um, I think you can X out of it. I think you can close it out. I'm, I don't know if it's I don't know, and 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 well, I they just email you, I know that much, yeah, all that stuff, yeah, by the way, if you're so you know, feeds are evil, I think that's what we're agreeing on here, <laughs> and you've cut I mean, you never were a big social media guy anyway,
0: I never was, but I, I I took it well, when I reset my phone, I didn't reinstall them. I decided I didn't need them, I didn't really want to be that plugged in. I didn't want my face in my phone all the time, not that I was it just it just wasn't something that added to my life in any positive way. So I, I decided to do without it. I thought maybe I'll check it when I'm online in front of my computer every so often, but I, I haven't really done that. So I'm just yeah. kind of
1: off of it. And one thing, like, for example, uh, I could totally live without Facebook. Um, it's, I, I, I get that Twitch for it. Well, see, I say that. But there's important, I'm in some important groups, like my neighborhood groups in Facebook. <laughs> some of my brewing groups are in Facebook. Mm. And that's, I need those groups, Um the, the timeline thing sounds like
0: an addict, Jeremy. I need that. I, can't I, can't, I know, I, can't. I do. Don't I? I can't? I need it. Just one, just one more, man. Just one more. Come on, I'll, I'm not going to. Someone go needs.
1: Yeah. I, I can just see the Dave Chappelle meme with. Uh, he's got the white lips. you
0: know? <laughs> no, that's not exactly where I was going. Uh, anybody got any more of those Facebook groups?
1: <laughs> um, yeah, the the feed. I could I could live without the groups are. are, are uh, my point was they're actually having a, a practical kind of importance in my life. That's that's not just oh I want that dopamine hit. That they're, right? You know they're arguably more important than that. Yeah. Twitter is different for me though because I fo- I tend to use Twitter as a business slash uh, not career but professional thing. Um, where I that's where I get a lot of my news from. So I've curated who I follow, mm-hmm. and I and I get the news I need. And that's why I mean, for me, like Twitter is what killed RSS an RSS reader for me.
0: I I tried doing that for a while, but I don't know. I I guess I guess I started following too many people at some point, and I never. I feel weird about going in and and unfollowing people because I don't know if they can see that. Maybe they can. Uh, And but it's not it's not like a personal thing. It's not like me saying, oh, I don't want to. You said something wrong. I don't want to follow you anymore. It's just I just need to simplify life a bit. And so I decided, you know what i I really don't need to. I really don't need it at all. Yeah. So yeah. the
1: cool thing is, um, if you are trying to reduce the time you spend in social media apps, um and but you still like use Twitter the way I do to get kind of this this mm-hmm. list of news that's in and links mainly, you can you know follow the people you want to follow, but don't, you know, you don't have to get on Twitter much. You can sign up for like um what's uh n- like Nuzzle is one app that you sign up, you you know, give it your you know, do the a law thing with Twitter. Mm-hmm. And then emails you every day, the most important links and news that were in your feed. And there's a couple well, other... Um, is I heard that
0: about it. based on your feed and Twitter?
1: Yeah, based on your Twitter account. Oh, yep.
0: okay. Um, I was going to say, because I've recently been giving Apple News a try, and I may switch back to Flipboard as well, just to kind of just get curated news feeds. But. Flipboard kind of does that too, right? Yeah.
1: yeah. But Nuzzle emails it to you, so it keeps you, you, know, keeps you out of apps and websites and stuff. Anyway, wow, none of this was even on the agenda. No agenda. Question for <laughs> you, um, because this was a big thing at, what was, um, Google just had a big conference, right? Did they? Speaking of speaking of my feed of, of stuff I saw in my feed, uh, and I'll try to link to this because I don't even, I just have the topic, progressive web apps in my, in my list here I wanted to ask you about. So that's, Google's got a big, uh, uh, oh gosh, what's a, what's a nice word to say? They've got a big interest uh, in progressive web apps right now. That's like that's their hot thing. What is a progressive well, web app? That's a that's a damn good question. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot to them. It's so basically a, a progressive web app is a a web a web based site slash kind of app that uses what's it where you kind of build up based on the based on the the browser's capabilities. Um, progressive enhancement is that what it's called? progressive enhancement right so oh. you so if you know if someone visits your site with javascript off and an old browser like it's still going to work it may not be laid out perfectly and it it may not have the the all the uh, sizzle and and shininess but mm-hmm. it will work you know it's still based on good old html and web technologies like forms and posting and and proper urls and things like that well, here, I'm on Google's page. So progressive. It works for every user regardless of browser choice because it's built with progressive enhancement as a core tenant. It's responsive, fits any form factor. Connectivity independent. So they use service workers to do offline stuff hmm. or on if you're on a low-quality network. Um, it's app-like. It feels like an app because the app shell model separates app functionality from application content. Hmm. So there's, apparently there's, and I've I, you know I've never done these, but I guess there's is it like a Cordova type thing where it creates some kind of like app shell that your thing runs in? I don't know. Uh, they're they're fresh, so they they update themselves thanks to service worker. So you can have a progressive web app that install that gets installed on someone's phone just like any other app, but it 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 doesn't participate in like that whole app store thing. It can update mm-hmm. itself somehow. Um, so they're discoverable. What is I don't know how it's identifiable as an, identifiable as an app thanks to the W three C manifest. And service worker registration scope. So it's it's installable. Users can add uh, allows users to add apps they find most useful to their home screen without the hassle of an app store.
0: So that sounds like something I just look into more. That's the thing they're all about. I mean, when you first described it, it sounded like something that was just good practice, is you always you always start out with zero JavaScript and then you start layering JavaScript. Although in our world of of salesforce you, there is no option you no, just hit the ground running with I mean, javascript for better or worse like the
1: i mean the apps that i generally build that you know outside of salesforce they are i mean they're just if you don't have javascript you're not using this app Did you say javascript uh, J- java java <laughs> java i don't know is that they're kicking in that was my that was my spanish pronunciation
0: right java are you making fun of the way Spanish? You yes, can't yes, say same. L's and, yep. y- and Y's. Right, we say Jello.
1: That depends <laughs> on what country you're from. Yeah, uh, but yeah, I mean the I don't. I mean, I don't know. I'm like I said. I know there's frameworks and things that help that that help you build these things. But you, I think it's first of all, this would make if you a progressive web app, web app is not going to be something that's cheap to build.
0: No, definitely not. No. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I was gonna. In fact, yeah. when you were describing, I was gonna say, yeah, that's 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 for a company that can afford that stuff. I mean, exactly. most, most companies, when when they come to you and they want you to build something, they want it. They have a timeline, they have a deadline, they have a budget, and they want you to meet that budget. And you know, this kind of stuff, this kind of you know, really best practices, or or even just these kind of really nice, well thought out. I, I don't know what you would call this. Uh, what what would this be? An ideology? A framework? A Oh, what is progressive web app? Yeah. That's a, I don't know how a you. pattern? I don't, I don't know. May, maybe a pattern. Maybe, yeah. a, let's just say pattern okay. for pattern's sake. But I mean, you know. It's an they architecture. Don't care about it's this. an architecture, right? They wouldn't come to you and say, we want you to build a progressive web app. That's usually typically not what what happens. Well. At least in our world. Yeah. Let me Let me box this and say in our world, in our Salesforce world, you know, even if we're building something custom that's going to layer on Salesforce, usually that's not what they're I mean, Salesforce
1: doesn't do progressive web apps.
0: I yeah, I don't know. I mean,
1: turn JavaScript off and, and try to log into Salesforce and do Lightning or really anything. What's going to happen? I don't know. Maybe maybe it'll take off
0: the picture of Benny off every time I log in. <laughs> Someone else was complaining about that to me today. You know, I saw it once and I thought about posting it and saying, this is creepy. I'm sick of seeing this. But then when I log back in, it was gone. I was like, oh, okay, maybe it's just like this one. Uh, it, it
1: rotates. They're using the Microsoft Admin Rotator. It does rotator rotate, component. but
0: now it <laughs> seems like it's been prioritized in the rotator because now I get it like probably one out of two times. You're just overly sensitive to it. it maybe it's creepy. Let's see. He needs, he, needs, he needs someone to, he needs a better PR person who can tell him to look a certain way. I don't know. Maybe it's just creepy. He's always looking to the side with that creepy grin.
1: Yeah. I'm, I'm looking for examples of progressive web apps, web apps that are good, but I don't know. Poise. Um, <laughs> well, I will them? say, uh, yeah. I mean, looking at Benny when you log in may be annoying, but man, at least they changed. I mean, I feel like it was on the same person for a year. Why did they have to year. advertise
0: on the login screen, period? Because everyone goes you're, you're already there. In, you're already locked in.
1: It's a perfect place. How can marketing resist that, John? But you're, already,
0: you're already locked in. I mean, What's the point?
1: It's, it's
0: the ultimate real estate here on, of enterprise web apps. Uh, just give me a login screen and be done with it. I mean, you can't change that. You can set up your own login yeah. screen. Anyway, I'm going to keep
1: my eye on this progressive web app things. I might, I might check it out and see if I can just build a little sample one. Um, just because it sounds like they're big budget things that uh, big companies with a lot of money to blow on some uh, poorly... Uh, Conceived idea, what it would would do. <laughs> I'm happy to
0: take their money to build them a completely well. Who, who is running app? JavaScript? I mean, Fire, Firefox. I don't know if you follow Firefox, but they're coming out with their new browser soon. It's in beta right now. I don't you know. Can I, don't, I
1: can't. I can't imagine what is the legitimate use case for no JavaScript. The only thing I can think of is tinfoil hat wearing people who turn off JavaScript. Yeah, because I'm sorry, I the, just the web does not work. You're not going to be able to use. Your banking app, you're probably not going to be able to use your g your your uh, what do you call it email yeah app. I mean, I don't know what's going to work without JavaScript. I don't know.
0: I mean, I've, I, mean I think Wikipedia, I think Wikipedia people, would
1: probably work somewhat without JavaScript. Well, I,
0: I think a lot of people are, aren't so much concerned about JavaScript itself, but they're they're concerned with the privacy that that it exposes with JavaScript because because now now people well, can 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 bring in these scripts that will that are part of these networks that will yep. share your information with all these other sites and everything, and so they're just trying to. Cut that off in the safest ways to say okay, no scripts. Even that doesn't doesn't
1: stop you from uh, being exposed to no. I mean, it's tough. You have to you have stuff. to have
0: a VPN. You have to turn JavaScript off. You have to have a browser that has no tracking. I mean, yeah. you have to do all these things right. just to try to even mask yourself a little bit, and it might not be enough. Yeah. So I, I think
1: I think that's one quiver or one arrow in the quiver of the privacy anti privacy people is is turning off JavaScript. That's just yeah. one one thing of the many things they do.
0: Anyway. Uh, well, we have some community topics if you want to get into those. Sure. Um, let's let's start with this one. He actually gave us three topics uh, as anonymous. Uh, he says, a little background. I'm working on something that's currently in production for a specific company. We're considering approaching other companies to license what we created. Uh, so this is going to get into some of the uh, discussions we've had about. Yeah. Uh,
1: hey, let's <laughs> make it so we can reuse it.
0: Okay. No, 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 no. I think it's going to get into <laughs> uh, copyright stuff. It could be. Oops. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. That's my bro. Let me. Uh. Oh, won't let me. Uh. It, it's an unmanaged package at the moment. Lots of custom objects and has a smattering of everything in play: lightning components, triggers, process builder, etc. So that's the background. Uh. First question. For one feature I've recently developed, I'm using the D3JS lib. I looked up licensing. Basically, a copy left retaining the notice. So, so what's the convention for Force.com folks? Uh, where do you put copyright notices of free to use works that you're leveraging? Well, well, the the, the library itself—if you include the library in your static resource—should have the license in it, and that should be.
1: It does. What's all you need? Th- what, um, let me look at the license for D3. Well, hold on. Let me say There's this. No way.
0: It- N- nothing, Jeremy and I say we're not lawyers. We're not copyright experts, but that's it. W- should exist, and you sh- it should come along with that package, right? So D3 is a BSD license. Um uh I can send you the link.
1: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a pretty liberal license. So you can kind of do that whatever you,
0: you can do whatever you want with
1: it, basically. Yeah, okay. it's
0: a BSD <laughs> license, uh permissions, commercial use, modification, distribution, private use. Now in that case,
1: liability warranty. I don't even know that you have to include its license. You can just embed D3 in your app and you you are you you know you don't have to
0: declare its you don't have to keep that license in there. Well, most of them do say in the license or in the the text, the readme, it'll yeah. say retain this message. Yeah. So right. all you have to do is include that library in your static resource, zipped up or whatever, and just retain that in the file. Don't don't remove it.
1: But the conventions I say, and again, not a lawyer, um, is to have a license, literally just a file called license in all caps, in the root mm-hmm. of your project. And then also some companies, lawyers, make <laughs> make developers put a license like a preamble or a clause or whatever at the top of every single source code file.
0: Oh well, in that case, use your use your IDE to your advantage and have it put it in there as right. a template. Yeah,
1: <clears throat> and uh, I think most IDEs can also just kind of it automatically collapses that, so you don't have to like look at that super yeah. ugliness every
0: time you open a file. Yeah, I love that. All right, yeah. question
1: two. That's as bad as the email f- footers that are eight pages long that apparently <laughs> don't hold up at all. They they have they're useless.
0: Yeah, I'm not a fan of those. Um, I know some people use them and I don't fault them for trying to, to, for using them or trying to use them, but still, it's it's really annoying. It sucks we live in this world where you just, you just got to cover your ass in every which way. <laughs> well, you don't want to get, to get kicked. And, and you can't, you can't go anywhere in this world without thinking, am, am I, am I going to offend someone or am I going to creep someone out? This morning I was, I was walking and I was pacing this, this older lady with her dog and I was like, we're both going in the same direction. <laughs> no. And so I purposely went a different direction, yeah. a longer way home, because I was pacing her and I was afraid she was going to think I was creeping on her. I'll do that too, actually. And I was like, this is wrong. Yeah. I shouldn't feel this way. I shouldn't, yeah. I shouldn't feel like people are going to think I'm doing something wrong when I'm just walking here. Or
1: what about, you know, people don't want their kids to play at uh, other kids to play at their house because if something happens, you know, everyone
0: sues nowadays. Oh, Yeah. Well, I'm not that I'm not that sensitive, but
1: I think this is an. I mean, I think this is an American thing. I've been told that America is more litigious than most countries.
0: Mm. Well, that sucks. Yep. Uh, can you explain a little about locker service? This is question two. This is a John question. If you know, at least, well, I, I yeah okay. If you know at least the D3JS, I'm pretty sure the author is trustworthy. But if you could go into some detail on how locker service actually works and what pitfalls remain. Uh, WRT using with regard to with regard to okay using a third party work yeah see I'm not on Twitter so I don't know all these I know very little about Locker words. Service
1: but does it, it prevents you from using a lot of globals right so
0: window you can't well, well yeah so first of all um Locker Service isn't about trustworthiness it isn't about Salesforce saying oh jQuery is approved and this is approved and that's approved it's it's not that
1: oh no, it's, it, it's about what those scripts do right they right so
0: they basically abstract you from the main window object or any kind of the document and the window object, they abstract you from all that. So if those frameworks do something that relies on those and Salesforce doesn't have a, um, probably a polyfill. What's the right word to say? It's it, it, they basically abstract you from it. Or if they have something that, that, that they layered their own security on top of for that feature, like they'll expose a feature, but they'll have their own checks and balances within that feature. Yeah, It's like a filtering wrapper. Yeah. Yeah. There they go. Um, and so so if there if you have a library that's depending on something like that then that's where you might have issues. Now Salesforce has created a list and it's somewhere on their help page of things that they've tested or used and said, "Yeah, these seem to work okay. Go ahead and use them." But it's not a it's not a approval or a you know, a flag or a certification that says, "Yes, this will work. Go ahead or this is approved." Right. So there there isn't any of that. Locker Service is purely about protecting the, the document object model because you have your component plus someone else's components and they don't want to compromise your code overriding their code or accessing their data that type of stuff
1: yeah I mean this is the challenge of you can in Lightning you can compose pages of these components that come from various places right and I mean you thought cross browser scripting and cross and CSRFs and everything were, were an issue <laughs> this
0: is way more complicated than that I would imagine yeah I mean, because essentially if that wasn't there, then I could write a component that could reach into my, I don't know, accounting seed component and start calling their APIs. Yep, and then what you could do is you could then send that data to
1: a a, a company could make a a bad component. Yeah. What's the word, nefarious? No. uh, I don't know. Uh, Malware? Yeah, I guess. That reads your data and even sends your session cookie to their server, and all they have to do is make sure they've caused. Uh, all the Salesforce domains, mm-hmm. and your browser will let it go through. Yeah, I'm assuming this is the type of thing they block. I don't, I don't uh, that, that that this is all about. I don't know.
0: Well, it does. I mean, it it blocks a lot of the cross site scripting stuff. It also blocks a lot of the because with JavaScript, it's one global namespace. <laughs> That's false. I mean, it, document or is it window is is the object? I mean, you you can layer your your faux namespace within that. You know, it's window dot you know ns dot whatever. But it still gets gets back to the root. So, so they're, they're trying to protect that. I'm
1: going to put my marketing hat on and I've got a, I've got a, a, a free slogan for the locker service team. Ready? <laughs> okay. Re- reading the OWASP website so you don't have to. <laughs> Every developer should be reading this site and at least understand like the, what they have, like a top 10. You got to know all these things, man. CSRF, what are the big ones? And there's so many. Understanding cookies and security behind cookies and mm-hmm. all the all the new types of vectors and it's all it's very complicated. Yeah. But there's I mean, there's all kinds of things you can do to protect yourself. You just have to know what they are.
0: Do you feel that, that uh, you know, focusing on web development in the Salesforce world where you're you're kind of on these training wheels, you're in these I don't know, you have these bumpers, so to speak, little bowling reference mm-hmm. um, that you you kind of atrophy on some of that security stuff. Oh, I definitely
1: stuff. think so. Or, or you're, uh, you're a developer who you started out your developer life in Salesforce. That's why, that's why I've commonly said, listen, if you're a Salesforce developer, like the best thing you could do is go learn something other than Salesforce.
0: Yeah.
1: And listen to what that, well, listen to what that community is talking about, what it's doing. You're going to learn a lot but of things. not just a
0: language. I mean, set up a server or no, set no, up a set of Oh, uh, and, uh,
1: yeah, right. Yeah. And, and that's what I mean. I mean, you know, go learn some other framework that's not in Salesforce that's on a different language. Uh, You know, run some test apps, you know, build some little demo, what are they called, Uh, do a side project in in one Mm -hmm. of these things. And again, find out what that community is, you know, talking about, read the release notes. You're going to learn a lot of things that, I mean, they're still important in the Salesforce world. Salesforce tries to, and they do, and you got to give them credit, I mean, they do a pretty good job of keeping things secure. Mm -hmm. But you still, if you're a Salesforce developer, right, and you don't actually know real development, you, then you don't know what you don't know, and it right. and you don't know when you are about to cut off your leg. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah, very true.
1: I mean, and you you know you can't know everything, and there's you know with security, I mean there's, uh, I mean you know Salesforce probably you know, they they spend who knows how many millions a year on security. They're, I'm sure they have a huge security department, and they're probably they probably are paying firms outside firms, you know, to constantly attempt to. You know, uh breach Salesforce's systems. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, there's only so much you can do, but but do what you can do, whatever that is. At least at least start learning so that you at least know what you don't know. That's a that's a start.
0: Yeah. I mean <laughs> if you're developing, you know, custom pages and stuff on Visual Force, then consider yourself a web developer and go out and learn about web development. Yeah. Learn about the security stuff. Learn about, you know. Again, start at OWASP
1: and just know that the OWASP, they publish, a, at least they used to, but yeah, OWASP top 10. At least just understand those. If you understand those, like SQL injection, cross site scripting, uh, CSRFs, you know, how, cook, how uh, security around cookies works, mm-hmm. having Java, you know, JavaScript-only cookies or, or you're making sure your cookies are secure, there's all kinds of little properties of cookies that you can apply that the browser will take certain protections on to make sure your cookies aren't leaking so you don't have, mm-hmm. because that opens you up to what's called session fixation. Or someone can basically take over your session because you didn't secure your cookie properly.
0: So there's, I mean, it's all kinds of things like that. That um, you know, good to know. Good to know. Yeah, it might even give you some insight on why Salesforce locks something down the way they did, right. or, or why you can't do something the way right. you think you should be able to. Because
1: it's fun. It, as fun as it is to just uh, ignorantly bitch. <laughs> and I don't know who around here would do that. Um, it
0: You know, it helps to know these things. Yeah. All right. Question three. You might like this one. Uh, do you actively try to avoid process builder or rather what merits does it bring if any uh, spoiler alert I've personally grown to hate hate it with a grudge but I feel I may be unfair and there's a part A to this or part mm-hmm. B I'm starting to have an emotion of just abandoning process builder altogether at least where I think I can and migrate to triggers uh, most of all because process builder files aren't easily searchable blah 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 okay so how do you feel about you're process looking builder you're at me
1: okay <clears throat> well there's a lot to like about Process Builder and there's a lot to hate about Process Builder and that's really the truth. And it's, so it's it's complicated.
0: It's Facebook uh, status would be complicated. Relationship <laughs> yeah, status.
1: Yeah, <it's> complicated. <laughs> I mean, I can sit here and list all the things that are good about it. We all know what they are. That you can customize Salesforce with all this logic and kind of workflow and event handling and do things that you couldn't otherwise do unless you know programming, right? And mm-hmm. that's pretty awesome. I mean, it's, you know, it's a nice little tool. Hey, it may not be Pega, but
0: because <laughs> <laughs> Pega can't. <laughs> yeah,
1: but it's uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, there's a lot of downsides too, though. Um, they just you know, like they, not searchable. It's not doesn't play well with metadata. Doesn't play well with version control. It doesn't play well with just the complexity that it creates in terms of the
0: uh, interaction between Process Builder and other features. It also doesn't seem to respect uh, the dependency checker. So, if you try to delete something... Oh, yeah. So, that's right.
1: What else? I mean, there's, there's, you know, and again, a lot of these have been... We should just say this. A lot of of the problems with process builder that were early on problems have been, if not fixed, at least improved or mitigated somewhat. Like, some of the performance things have gotten a little bit better. But again you are um you're basically letting salesforce write you know some this this tool attempt to write your triggers and your code for you that's what it's doing yeah uh, kind of in a way i'm not saying it's actually generating code that gets run but it's you're do,
0: you're essentially doing the same thing i mean it's it's i think a lot of times it comes down to perspective too i mean i i've heard of people who have really leveraged it to do some really nice things and 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 do something they otherwise couldn't do like you said <clears throat> but i've also been on the side of Having to replace all those and build it out in code, uh, just because it either was screwing things up, or it just was throwing weird errors, or it just wasn't performant. It didn't scale, you know. And that's that's the bigger issue, I think, is it just doesn't scale.
1: I mean, are your what you know? Are are the odds higher of having Apex that throws gags that you can't figure out, or a process builder throwing gags that you can't figure out?
0: More likely process. I mean,
1: and I know. I mean, and I've done projects too where we just basically, and they've they've tied themselves in a knot with these process builders and they're like, yeah, just, let's just replace all those with, um, something else. I've done those projects. But as soon as i mention those, someone will say, Hey, I've done the opposite. Um, who was it the other day that chimed in and said that? Um, can't remember. I remember, but it's like, I can't remember. Um, they were like, yeah, I've actually replaced all these really crappily written triggers with process builders. Everything's working much better. And I totally believe that. You know, yeah. there's, well,
0: crap code is crap code. <laughs> exactly.
1: <laughs> the problem is is you can do something that's totally legitimate in process builder and it can essentially result in crap code.
0: Question is how do they deactivate the old code? I don't know. Do 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 most admins know how to do that? Delete code?
1: Probably not. I mean, it's that's I th- usually those are kind of a team effort. Mm. Anything that big. Yeah. You know, like because if you're like in your in your case where you replaced process builders with a bunch of triggers, I mean you have to you have to really understand what they're doing and sometimes just you're not going to get the full understanding by it. no matter how much you study the process, the processes, it's, it still helps to...
0: Well, I've seen some gnarly ones. I've seen some that trigger other process... We don't we have a better word for process builders? We're just there's not. No, that.
1: there's not. That's the problem. That's, that's actually the biggest problem with process builder. <laughs> there's not a good word for
0: it. I think you can chain process builders and so... Well, because
1: what do you do with process builders? You build...
0: Pro, uh, process. Workflow. Processes. It, it, it's
1: a process builder. It's, a process. it's not a workflow builder.
0: Yeah, I guess you build a process. Yeah, you build a process. Unfortunately, so that's, the process. problem is,
1: is process is a very overloaded term in the Salesforce world, right? Yeah, there's sales processes and case processes and lead processes. So, when you say process builder,
0: it's like, well, what are you, what are you talking about? Well, if you say process, it's what you're talking about. When you say process builder, we know. What's oh, right. Yeah. Sorry. Yeah. Right. Uh, I w- I will say that I did have an opportunity to. It was it was fifty fifty. I could have implemented something using process builder. It was kind of a very simple roll up. Um, and I could have done it in code. I chose code because I felt it was more reliable, and I was right because I could scale it. Um, because there was some child record dependency that I forgot about, and I was able to just call my code.
1: I feel like code still is, and, and I don't, I don't know that this will ever change. I mean, that's again, there's downsides to code, custom code, as Salesforce likes to call it. But there's also advantages, and one of the advantages of custom code, I think, is that, again, assuming it's well-written code, mm-hmm. right? There's a, and that's the other thing, like. I uh, feel You know, try to hire good people, um, but I, I feel like uh, code is more future proof. Well written, well factored code is going to be more future proof. Even though refactoring Salesforce is harder, you're still going to be, you know, better refactoring. You'll you'll be able to find better op- better opportunities for reuse and and being able just to compose things and add things on in the future. Mm-hmm. I just think that's not
0: as possible with process builder. You, you'll run into problems sooner. So is is the message here not to give up on it, to to keep your keep your oh, eye on it and yeah. watch it advance? I, well, I I, I don't I guess, think Salesforce is going to abandon it. I no, mean, no, it's, not it's at something all. that no. they have oh, to no. do. They're I mean, not, they're not the abandoning. Low code they're, platform. they're doubling
1: down. They're spending millions on trying to on trying to rebuild the 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 builder. Yeah, <laughs> rebuilding the builder. Bob the builder. Yeah.
0: Uh, yeah. So I agree. I, I don't think we're at a point where we can just say screw no, it. No, no, not it.
1: at all. In fact, the opposite. I mean, I'm I would probably I think as it gets better, there should be less talk about that. I, again, for a lot of scenarios, I think it's, I think it's a good tool. Yeah. It's just, I'm, you know, for me, I mean, if I'm involved, I've, or, or any, you know, I would say experienced developer is involved, your rationale for using process builder just got cut out at its knees. Part of the rationale for process builders, you don't have to have developers. You know, it's, it's hard to find good developers. Yeah. And, and it's. You know, well, the, it's not just it's that it, cliff, right? Well, they, don't they call it that you know the cliff that you fall off of as soon as you hit a certain complexity? I mean, yeah, this this makes the this makes the cliff much shorter or further away, whatever the, I don't know how this metaphor works. <laughs> <laughs> but process so, builder, no, it just allows you to get a lot more done without having to, you know, hire a consulting firm or find a good developer.
0: And I I don't okay. So I have another I have another perspective. It's probably on not good this. for consulting firms. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. So I have another perspective on this, and I want to get your your opinion on it. And that is that it's not just the fact that Someone can create something using point and click, but it's also that they can easily edit it in the future if there's a change to the logic um, using point and click without having to do that now. I I think traditionally as developers, we've all because we're 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 doing these bids, we're doing dollars for hours, which means we're all trying to come in at the cheapest, which means we're sacrificing early on features like customizability. We can code things and make it customizable but we don't because we're trying to meet this dollar point.
1: Yeah, don't pick the don't pick the lowest bidder for this stuff. You'll you'll get so, what you pay for. So
0: I think I think there's this kind of mentality that custom code is means that you always have to bring a developer back. But if you if you come into it and in saying, "Yes, this is a custom code, but we want to be able to change these attributes of this code or this logic." It's possible for us to do that and give you an interface to do that. Um but again, you don't like
1: making settings for things or, or
0: settings for things yeah. or allowing someone to, to configure things, I mean, i have built I have built dupe matchers. I've built uh, custom filtering systems. I know, I knew you have too. Um, I mean, we've done all these things to allow someone to go in and using point and click or just mm-hmm. editing an, an object right. record that that modifies the code, or at least modifies the attributes that the code pays yeah. attention to. And you
1: can end up with something that's more admin maintainable, far more admin maintainable than than some complicated process would be. Right? Because a lot of admins, you know, either you know don't know process builder at all, or you know, they know it, but they try to avoid it because they've, you know, it's just, again, it, it's a tool that if you don't, if you don't have to, I mean, because you are creating complexity, you're creating mm-hmm. um, things that have to be maintained, you're creating a liability, a longer term liability. A co- code is too, I'm not saying it's not, but if, if the admin can just be like, you know what, why don't you create that complexity, make it easy so I can adjust settings on it, and then I'm happy.
0: Right. Yeah. All right, so uh, let's move on. Uh, so this is from a different person. Uh, Oh, wait, 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 is
1: it okay? so I guess it's okay we used their name?
0: Yeah, it says, long-time listener, feel free to use my name. <laughs> I got this covered. Okay. All right, <laughs> just making sure. Uh, he says, I started reading A Seat at the Table, IT Leadership in the Age of Agility. And one of the chapters uh, challenges the notion of whether it makes sense to buy off-the-shelf products such as Salesforce or to build your own. The author argues that the e- economics of software development have changed so much that it is now more favorable to build than buy. The main argument being that it is actually cheaper and more advantageous to build your own software given limitations of off-the-shelf products and the level of customization that they require. Love to hear your thoughts on the above.
1: Well, this is, again, uh, a complicated answer, and I'm a consultant, so it depends. (laughs) A couple points here. One is that, yes, it has gotten much cheaper to build software. So I recently started a um, a project that... um, I'm building on Java and Spring and Spring Boot, and it's got Spring Security uh, using uh, Spring MVC for a bunch of REST stuff or API work, and it's it's amazing. With I mean, especially with Spring Boot, because is it phenomenal? It's I would say so. Is it incredible? I would say so. You're you're triggering me, John, aren't you? <laughs> Trying to get a woo oh, out of I've you? I've got to get I've got to get a better setup. I know I keep saying that. I can't find anything. <laughs> oh, because I can't type.
0: Woo! It's awesome. I'll do it for you. I'll do the woo. Like that's awesome. There you go. Uh-huh.
1: This is awesome. This is amazing.
0: <laughs> that's one of the best <laughs> ones. Um, where was I, John? Yeah, you're talking about your amazing software built on Spring, right? So,
1: yeah, I mean, so Spring. I mean, just in a quick little nutshell here, Spring Boot is a as a project within the, within the Spring. Pivotal world mm. um, that makes it incredibly easy actually to get a f- fully fledged app up and running within literally minutes. So it sets up your transaction managers. Sounds your, like your, you're describing a hello. Your world. database connections. I mean, like I'm using Spring Security and and it's simply about just putting things on the class path. That like it brings them in, sets all these really competent defaults, and you can just change the things, just tweak it. Uh, yeah, and so I mean, you can just get started so fast. It's it's I mean. And I, you know, there's. I'm sure you can find demos out there of people that have. Um, uh, I don't know Josh Long. I've seen a couple of his. He's like the Spring's main. Um, what do you call the person that goes out there and gives demos all the time? That evangelist. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's just it's pretty amazing. i I mean, I've done several Spring projects in the past, but this is the first time that I've really started from the ground up with Spring Boot, and it's just gosh, it's it's incredible. Uh, so yeah, I mean, and, and, and between I'm jealous I'll between say. things like that and then all the deployment and runtime technologies with cloud and everything mm-hmm. it's just it's like wow yeah you can just create i mean what used to cost you know 6 months and a, a team of 10 people and you know kind of a probably a multi-million dollar budget is now something that one guy can crank out in a month a guy a gal right that's how you said generically um for you know 10 grand it's just it's amazing
0: well yeah because a lot of the infrastructure that would go along with that setting up the servers and the security and the firewalls it's and all awesome. that that's all that can all be taken care of now. You can either go with Amazon or there's a lot of companies that offer, you know, quick startup pods that you just, you plug into your infrastructure yeah. and and you've got a pod now. Yep. And so it's the distribution and management of all that has become a lot easier.
1: But on the other hand, um, custom software is always, it's always complicated and complex and the most difficult part of it, part of it is the human aspect of it, not the technology aspect. So the technology right. aspect has gotten a lot better.
0: I'm not convinced we've made much progress on the human aspect at all. I mean, well, I, I think for a lot of people that they, they enjoy the building of it, but they don't once they cross over to the maintenance side of it, it they they kind of lose interest. That's they, so you lose. You want to be really on the good hook, people. You want
1: to be on the hook for maintaining it, especially nowadays. I mean, all apps are web facing, right? So that means yeah. that someone's got to be staying on top of all patches, maintenance, security, bulletins, all that kind of thing. Yeah, that's an ongoing expense. So does it make sense to build your own CRM? I mean. C- you know, could John and I kick you out a, a, a basic little CRM in a month? Yes. Is that a good idea? Probably not. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if someone I'm wants sorry, to if someone wants to put idea. together a, a a GoFundMe and like a plan for uh, taking on Off, then I'm all for it. But until then, <laughs> I suggest buying Salesforce.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> so, you know, I, I don't know. I, 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 when people come to me wanting to build custom software, I mean, it's it's actually my job to talk them out of it because I've learned the hard way that if I don't, um, then I end up letting people through my filter that I should never have done business with. I should never have agreed to build software with them because they didn't know what they were doing. They didn't know what they were getting into. They had no business getting in that business. Right. Um, and of course, you know, I'm much older, smarter. And I have a higher hairline and more gray hairs and <laughs> inches around my waist to prove it.
0: I don't um, know. I think your hairline's pretty pretty stable. Oh,
1: but um, yeah. So I I really try to talk people out of building software, and if they can successfully talk me into building them software, mm-hmm. then they're I think a much better candidate than you know what my what my um, lead qualification process used to be.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I, I always find some of the better architects or developers that that I come across. You know, they, they definitely. They definitely try to focus on, on what the capabilities of the system are, what can we do native before they start trying to cut, it, cut everything up with code. I mean, I, I, I think that's a, that's a really good approach to, to when it comes to these things with Salesforce. Because um, so many people, I, I don't want to say so many people, but I have been in situations where the customer just doesn't understand Salesforce enough to know what its capabilities are and what the trade-offs are, or even understand how to transition what they're doing today into the Salesforce world that they feel like, oh, that doesn't exist, so i got to create it. And so you got to spend a lot of time educating and kind of walking them through how this can work in Salesforce, the advantages, the pros and cons, and then try to make a decision on whether we really need to replicate this, this legacy type of functionality, or whether or not it exists, but it exists in a different form in Salesforce. Right. Yeah, exactly. Good point. Um, so. So, yeah. I don't. I don't know what. The, I guess. I guess like the the short answer to that is it's complicated. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I do see that. I don't know. I think. I think it's always been a mantra of of buy over build. I, I don't remember a time where companies were just wanting to build things. It was always an expensive endeavor. It was always just because there was there wasn't a product out there that would fit their specific needs, and they started to build. Right. Um, I mean, but that, it was not something they really wanted to do. They really wanted to find something that existed, but they couldn't, so they built it.
1: So one of the questions, I guess, you know, is is the thing you're wanting to build is that going to be your your business's core value add, their core competency? If yeah. it's not, then definitely try to outsource that. Yeah, meaning buy some software or some
0: service. Yeah. Um, well, how okay. do you feel about outsourcing the development of your business critical application? Like I don't that? think you should. Yeah.
1: I mean, maybe in source, like you know, if you're bringing in, like you know, and you know, because uh, you can't have employees for everything. So, like you know, guys, like us, for example, like do you want to bring some of us in to help with certain parts, sure or yeah. whatever. But in general, yeah, you're you're building that yourself. Don't you? You can't, uh, you know, you can't throw your company's core competency over the over the ocean to some you know cheap firm or whatever and expect right. to get something back that is going to be something you can build your business on. Yeah. But yeah, there's the, there's the, is it part of your, is it your core value out of so, you know, don't, uh, you need to build it. Uh, that's not to say you need to build everything. You know, stand on the shoulders of giants, right? Don't, don't invent your own uh, HTTP server. <laughs> <laughs> don't, don't write your own custom implementation of SSL or TLS, whatever the hell it is nowadays.
0: How yeah. <laughs> about routers? shouldn't build your own router.
1: But then there's the, you know, so if it's, if it's not your, if it's not your core value add, then, so you're going to try to build it or you're going to try to buy it. And then sometimes though, it's not available. Sometimes you need something that's just, just to get your, just to be able to deliver your core value to customers. You need high, either, either some highly customized software or you need, you do need to build something custom just that facilitates your, whatever you're trying to do.
0: Or, I mean, you, it might be a puzzle piece. You, you might need to bring in other applications to supplement a a given application to to provide the full picture.
1: And this is what you have to be careful with either, you know, whether it's a some kind of consulting company or a consultant or, you know, freelance, you know, software engineers is, you know, t- t- most likely if you bring in someone like me
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, or someone who's a, you know, like a, a consultant freelance programmer or whatever, um, you know, they're, they program for a living. That's what they do. So if you say, what should we, you know, if, if you go in and say, well, well, yeah, I think we need to build some software here. I heard you're good at building software. I mean, what's that person going to say? Well, oh yeah, build some software. I build, I'll help you build some software. That's what I do. You have to be real careful with that.
0: Yeah,
1: It's like the frog and the scorpion. You know? Yeah. The scorpion's always going to be a scorpion. No matter what he says. True.
0: All right. Well, that's all I got. All right. Well, new topics.
1: Just some of things. Um, I saw a blog post from, uh, it, it's, it was about Salesforce, and it's called, you know, it's something about running fewer tests. I don't actually have the title. Let me see if I can find it.
0: In Salesforce? Yeah.
1: It's called Running Fewer Tests. It's, uh, no, Improve Your Application by Running Fewer Tests. Yeah. It's, and it's by Josh Kaplan. Do you know this guy? you ever met him?
0: Um, I want to say he sounds familiar. I want to say yes. I
1: don't know what it sounds like. I feel like he's like VP of some kind of product or platform or director of platform or something. Salesforce. Yeah. <clears throat> I, I want
0: to say I've interacted <laughs> with him like at one of the Dreamforce Probably things so. where I, you know, you get to meet the product managers type thing. Yeah. yeah.
1: I think he's one of these guys who also like unflinchingly, you know, created and and endorses the happy soup model as well. So I'll take this for what it's worth. <laughs> but he's talking about, it. it's an interesting article. I'll link it up. Uh, it's worth a read because uh, it does have some good stuff in it. But um, one thing he says is, you know, he's talking about is don't run, don't run all your tests during a production deployment. And uh, actually I learned a couple of, or just, I don't know, right. Some points that I'm not sure I was really keyed in on. Number one, it's slow, obviously. Mm-hmm. We know that. I was very, I'm very much keyed into that fact. Yeah. But when you, when tests run as a part of a production deployment, the tests all have to run in in series, serial, serially? Synchronously. Synchronously. Right, yeah.
0: yeah.
1: Actually, I think all those words worked, but whatever. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because they all have to be on the same thread, because if things don't go well, then they have to, they have to, whatever database connection was using, they have to call rollback on that mm-hmm. to roll everything back. And that only works if you're on, if you have one database connection and if you only have one database connection, you can only have one thread. <laughs> so it's a whole, it's a thread bound process. Right. Of running all those tests. So it's going to be slow. Um, and he says, you want to validate that your basic functionality won't be impacted with the deployment. You do not need to run every single one of your tests in order to achieve these goals. So this is kind of the where it gets controversial for me. Mm-hmm. Like, he's deploying new stuff to production, but he's saying, you know, only run these tests. And, you know, when was it? A few years ago, Salesforce introduced this feature where you can only run, or you can choose to run yeah. which tests to run and, or and, run them all. And I'm just like, well, this is a bad idea. I mean, if I knew what stuff I broke, I wouldn't even need tests. The reason I have tests and this big test suite is because
0: of stuff that I don't know that I've broken. Well, here, here's a scenario that I think this, this, thought process works, and that's continuous integration, right? I mean, you, if you only have one path into your system, then your new code coming in, you should, be, you should only have to rely on the test of the new stuff but coming in. That's an if that does not
1: work, because there is so many paths into the system, because there are things called admins that make changes in production. Yeah, and they break stuff. And there are things called other consulting companies that are jamming things into the, Managed packages. the customer's... Or just like you are, and there are managed packages and non-managed packages, and right. I mean, it's just it's yeah. a it's not a
0: it's not a happy soup. It's a and each one of those could create a dependency <laughs> that uh, that breaks your code. It, it can, yeah, it could be a dependency. It could be a validation rule, again, a data integrity yeah, rule, a
1: required field. Yeah, can break everything. Yeah, I, mean, I like to use that example because it's all it's so simple. Everyone understands it, and it can absolutely break everything. Yeah. And then you know, he, and he talks about what about the fact that their changes are made in production. And he says, uh, "Use a staging sandbox that you created a few days to, before your deployment."
0: Bullshit. Well, <laughs> <laughs> because you can only create one once a
1: month. And how? I mean, well, full sandbox you can only create once a month. But still, yeah, I know. Because sometimes you want to test with all your data, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, a couple of pro- so so yes, oh, no. that,
0: scratch work. There you go. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> well, Except those are. Again, how do you how do you get your scratch work to be just like production? How do you take all of your metadata? First of all, again, I, anyone who is involved with a SFDX project, I w- This is this is an open question out there. You and I'll. Anyone who wants to come on the show or give us send us some more information, I'm be more than happy to pass it on. But number one, how do I get all of my metadata? Because we because ninety percent of metadata did not count. If you only get ninety percent then it's probably not even going to deploy if you try to deploy that to some org because there's going to be something that some of the other metadata depends on that's not in there. So first of all, how do I get all and I and there are ways to do it, but I'm saying what is a what is an a, there should be a command, an sfdc an sfdx command that's just like get all metadata. Mm-hmm. Because right now with the current metadata api, you can get all of them, well, all that's supported. Right. That's the other that's a whole other thing. <laughs> the stuff that is not even accessible in any kind of automated way via any API that's, that's another problem but for the stuff that is you technically can get it all with a metadata API it's just a pain in the ass and it's not kind of you know it's, it's just difficult and right. a lot therefore most people aren't doing it would you agree with that? I know this is only anecdotally right?
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I don't think, I think there's a handful, a small percentage of people that are even attempting to download all the metadata. Yeah. Most most people are just kind of downloading what they need to develop, deploying it. Um, they're not doing some kind of continuous integration. They might have some kind of version control. Um, but yeah, I that that is a really tough nut to crack. And, you know, given the budgets and constraints that we're all dealing with, that doesn't come into play. Yeah,
1: and the more metadata that you do track and you do deploy and pull down, the more bugs and edge cases you're going to hit in the metadata API.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think fortunately for a lot of consultants, we're 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 in the world of implementation. So a lot of times, it's just it's a clean org, so it it we're, we're able to kind of deal with it. Um, of course, there are situations where you come into an org and it exists, and you have to. It's trial and error. Yeah, you do your trial and error deployments. You yep. deploy it, see what breaks, fix it. do and it your breaks, and you're your there job. all night. Yeah. yeah. And
1: and you're doing the thing where you, you refresh your sandbox often because changes are happening that are yeah. that you're not even getting. You don't even you know, you don't even know about them. You right. just know there's stuff happening that you don't know about and no one's capturing that and, and committing it to get and you're not, you know, you're just you're just not so you gotta refresh all the time. And that's yeah, that's really that's a huge smell in a project. Do developers have to refresh their sandboxes? Yeah. If they do, then that something's wrong. We have a hole in our process. There's stuff's getting into production. That the, that's the the only way they're getting it, and they're back in your developer sandbox is by refreshing your sandbox.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, but yeah, so he's back to you know use a staging sandbox. Um, so okay, so that partially solves the problem a little bit. So yeah, you got you got a reasonably recent mm-hmm. sandbox, which is actually a key as key part of that. It's yeah. reasonably recent.
0: I mean, I mean, it, it, important it, things could have happened after you refresh your sandbox, and that's always be- yeah. But I mean, with with that with that type of Solution: You could you could implement a code freeze or a freeze in well, general. You you could say, all right, we're we're testing this. We're about to do deployment in the next week, so this week no changes. Period. Yeah,
1: except um, some managed package did an auto push to your org. Or no.
0: Well, oh, crap? Jerry, or you're, or you're ruining your or stuff or these here.
1: apps, John. What about the apps now that um the 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 metadata API is available via Apex now? So Apex running in production can modify production, John. But that's, that's limited, isn't
0: that's, it? Isn't it more of like a read right now
1: than a than a actual part? Well, I think they're adding I think they're adding more write features to it. It is, it's not the full you don't have the full complement of yeah. the met you know, the metadata API, but that's a thing. You have self-mutating code base. Yeah. I, I since they announced that I've been asking, well, how how does this work? How is this supposed to work without <laughs> throwing a wrench in my happy soup? Um, But yeah, I mean, you know, after you, after you refresh your sandbox, I mean, things are going to change. I mean, and if you have a big org, I mean, a lot of these orgs have, you know, delegated admins and a bunch of admins and stuff. And um, it's tough. Yeah. But, and then the other thing is, I mean, I guess, I also guess that we're not doing, I mean, we're probably not doing deployments very often then. So, I mean, if you're saying refresh my sandbox a, a couple of days ahead of time, run on my test, which may take hours or a day or, and then I, fi- of course, I find the test that didn't pass. I come in the next day, I fix those, I I deploy I run all tests again, which also takes
0: forever again. Well, I, know, do so this is, I do find that companies that, that used so, to deploy very frequently have started to slow down to quarterly or once a month, or you know, they they scaled back the number of deployments just because how much of a headache it is to to continuously deploy, you know, on demand, right.
1: basically. So, th- so the kind of the state of the the state of the, the art nowadays is these either continuous deployment or um Continuous delivery, right, mm-hmm. is kind of a maybe more common now. But I mean, there's there's plenty of examples of all these, you know, the, the the companies that are doing it right or the most efficient or whatever. They're basically, I mean, every time they every time you commit to master, it goes into production. Yeah. And so, what we're talking about here is a, a process that you may be able to deploy once every couple of weeks. If it takes you that long, because first of all, I mean, you get a sandbox. Well, that that could take that might take thirty minutes. It might take two days. It depends on w- which pod you're on. Unfortunately, yeah. Some of these pods just are just t- will take you days to get a sandbox
0: yeah I'm laughing because I remember I'm, I because I brought up code freeze and I remember I made the list for code freeze and I had to make exceptions in the code freeze list uh, the code freeze list. Because there are certain things the company did not want to be able to do without. If they wanted to change a profile, they had to be able to do it. So I'd exclude profiles from the code freeze. Uh, except that can get you in trouble too. I know. I'm just saying. It I can't. No not necessarily for it sure. Was, but yeah, a number it can. of years ago, yep. but I remember that when I was when I was trying to n- nail down this whole deployment process because it was it was horrible, and I was trying to bring some sanity to it. And I came up with the code freeze because you know I needed time to test and get this in there with a fresh sandbox. Yep. Um, I had to make exceptions. I remember that. So one of the problems you run into, if you
1: if you exclude profiles, and, and there's all kinds of problems, but one one example of one is like, um, you had a new field for something, you deploy that, and that's mm-hmm. part of deployment or production. No one's going to have access to that field, not even system administrators. Yeah. And so whatever you built around that field is going to fail. They'll get you know some kind of you know you don't have access to that privileges, insufficient privileges. Yep. Okay. Um. See, I I mean, I I guess we're, you know, we're probably only doing deployments once every couple of weeks. we're doing this, certainly not the multiple times per day. I mean, if it takes me, again, if it takes a certain amount of time to get a sandbox and, and you can't, you can't wait to the last minute. I mean, obviously you'd like to wait to the last minute so that your sandbox is as fresh as possible. Right. But you can't risk that because if you know you've got to hit it, you know, you're going to, you need to deploy at a certain time You have a deadline, then you're going to,
0: you're going to get that sandbox
1: ahead of time to make sure that's not a problem. Yeah. That's, out and your, I,
0: that's out of your control. And I, I just want to clarify, I know some people think that, you know, a scratch org or just creating a quick sandbox is the solution. However, uh, in a lot of these, you know, if there is a real issue, then it has to go back through but testing. Why would it has I, to go through back, back through QA yeah, to yeah. resolve. And why would
1: I create a scratch org? I'm not deploying to a scratch org. I'm deploying to my production org, which already has this massive set of metadata in it, and I need to make sure that this build that I have, when you apply it to that production org, is going to work. Right. Not when I deploy it to a vanilla, empty scratch org. I mean, scratch orgs are good for some things, not for that.
0: Yeah, because essentially what we're saying is it didn't pass testing in production, which means all of our QA was invalidated, and now we have to go back to that process again. Yeah. I mean, if you, if you want to be realistic about mm. it, I mean, you could, you could skirt it and say, oh, this one thing failed, so let's fix that and, try and deploy And ignore the fact that we just invalidated our QA. Right.
1: Um, But he says, um, "So yeah, so create your sandbox, deploy to your sandbox, but don't run tests as part of deployment. Deploy to your sandbox, and then of course, if that deploys, then run do run all tests in that sandbox Mm -hmm. because that can run multi-threaded. Right, because it doesn't. There's no rollback that's needed, so they
0: can open it up. I don't know how many." Threads though, how many they'll do in parallel? Um, I don't know. It, I hear that threads in Salesforce are a, a huge commodity. A huge? You mean limited commodity, or what do you mean? It just means that, that every thread that gets spun up for something is. Uh-huh. It, it, I mean, there's only a finite amount of threads on a pod, so it's it, oh, it's true. not something they just well. willy nilly. Oh, I'm, yeah, toss a hundred threads at this. You know, it's it's no, th- and they usually don't. I
1: mean, in fact, that whole parallel test execution is is one of the few places that it's it's apparent.
0: Just from a user perspective, that it is doing something multi-threaded. Yeah, but I don't think you get like fifty or ten or no. twenty. You might get two.
1: Oh, I don't think it's more than that because <laughs> you when you look at so when you know you do the test text, test execution and you, and you enable parallel, mm-hmm. I mean you can see it looks like anyway that several are running at a time. The downside is though, yes, there may be several running at a time, but it appears to appears to slow them down by as many threads as it's added. Mm. Like, yeah, you might be using five <laughs> threads, but each one is operating like five times slower than what it normally would. Plus. I always have that problem. In fact, I never do parallel test execution, but it, it always creates um, locking, record locking problems. Do you get that? You ever do the parallel test mm-hmm. execution? You get, yeah. you get record locking errors, which I don't know why, because they should all be in their own transaction.
0: So, Well, I mean, they're all in their own transaction, but they're still... I mean, I guess, I, I don't know. Yeah.
1: And I always thought Salesforce mainly was implementing some kind of optimistic locking scheme but i still i still get those so i never do the parallel cuz i always said that
0: i button. get locking when i'm competing with process builders so oh really yeah, yeah. um
1: but i but anyway I, I that idea of uh running tests separately from deployment f- speeding the tests up that's even though i'm not sure that in the in practice is the case i don't know if that much faster cuz it doesn't seem like it mm-hmm. and it's got its other problems but it's still interesting though that i hadn't thought about that i hadn't thought about the fact that testing as a part Running all tests as a part of a deployment is bound is is bound to a single thread. I that's never realized that I guess. But yeah, totally no, I mean sense.
0: that 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 does make sense, and it it, it is a, a good thing to know. It's a bit of trivia to know because I mean, <laughs> it explains all those those hour long uh, sessions I had just staring at my computer at but, the fish. Yeah, because I had some component in there and it messes up the 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 circle graph. Yeah, yeah, no, I like that. It's, that's the bug that no one wants them to
1: fix. <laughs> all right. Uh, and then he says, "If the tests all pass in the sandbox, you are ready for a production deployment. Uh, you cross your fingers, and then he admits this: you cross your fingers that the banditos haven't changed. <laughs> it reminds me of that book. You have the Frito Bandito or whatever that the little uh, Chihuahua dog. Those books. No, <laughs> oh, those are good. Uh, you cross your fingers that the banditos haven't changed anything. Earth shattering since your staging sandbox was created, or or you set up rules against such things in a time frame. Yeah, good <laughs> luck." All right, so back to the development process. He says, break your tests up into functional groups and split each functional group up into basic and extended. So he says a basic, what he's calling basic, he basically considers this to be like happy path tests. Mm. So they execute your code, you know, they execute all your code paths. Right. And they make sure that like the expected input results in the expected output.
0: That's not bad. I mean, there, there are a certain amount of tests where I'm testing multiple scenarios just to make sure my code works. But I do see some value in breaking that up. It, does that mean like you would you wouldn't run your extended classes in testing, or you would kind of somehow turn them off? What do you mean extended classes? Uh, I'm sorry, inse- extended tests, as he calls them. Yeah, I guess you just you you set a flag that says run all, you know, in your class or something. Well, I don't know constant does, or something. Does I'm going to ask you this: Does Salesforce have some kind of? No, that's what I'm saying. Like a te- group of tests. I do something similar with like if if I have to bulk test, like I said, I'll, I'll put a constant that says, okay, my bulk test is hundred. And then right before I'm ready for this go to production, I'll knock it down to one or five or something. Yeah. Because it just, it's just not necessary. I already bulk tested that this works under normal load. Right. So I don't need to have that yeah. run every time and take up the time. Yep. So I'm assuming we would do something similar. We'd have some flag, some constant in our class that says all or, or basic. I
1: just think that's something you have to maintain yourself and you'll have to build your own tooling around yeah. how to run those and what, what runs them.
0: That's not a bad idea. No, it's
1: not. It's not a bad idea. I mean, in terms of just dealing with the practicality of right. developers actually running tests, because yeah. I mean, the problem is, in, you know, if you, if you have a test suite that takes two hours to run, not only are developers not going to run that whole test suite, you don't want them to. They'll yeah. be, be wasting their day, you know, and they're already probably
0: wasting their day waiting for things to compile and for sandboxes to r- create and stuff. I might explore that topic a bit more and see... See what the practicality of doing that is, and what issues it might cause. So and yeah,
1: so my question was just, what is the tooling situation? In this, I mean, you know, the JUnit and all these other things, they have they have support for the notion of a, a test suite, so you can define a suite that's like a collection of certain test classes, and then you can run that mm. suite, or you you know, which and it's uh, and all the tooling, you know, you when you run it, when you tell Jane to run, or you know, you can you can specify which suites to run. And then, you know, pretty much all the tooling around that CI and whatever else. I thought
0: Salesforce, and it was something I didn't get a chance to look into, but I remember um, some notices coming out from Eliminated Cloud talking about test suites or some kind of bug that was related to test suites or something. Does Salesforce offer test suites? I don't think. I I think it was more so. That's what I was asking. I think what a test suite is in the Salesforce world is you can selectively say, run this class or run this method, and that becomes the test suite, and that's what gets executed. But I don't think you have that flexibility when you deploy.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Hmm. How do you define that subset of tests that gets deployed, that gets run on a production deployment? Yeah, I don't know. I don't either. I've never used it. I'm scared. I mean, I, to. The,
0: the, yeah, I don't know.
1: I mean, until I don't, I don't, let's put it this way I don't trust it enough.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a bad idea. Like, well, I, I guess <laughs> I shouldn't say that. I have done it before in situations where I know it's not going to, I know it's going to take too long to run. Yeah. And I'm confident that what I'm putting in is going to work. So I have told it to only famous run famous last it t- words. I have told <laughs> it to only run the tests in my package. Um, I didn't like it at the time. Yeah. I didn't I did not like doing it. Yeah, I felt dirty doing it. I took a shower afterwards.
1: You <laughs> <laughs> also he also um described this notion of like and I don't know what he called it, but I'm gonna call it like progressively larger test runs. So basically and if you look at your development process, so you start working on a new feature.
0: Yeah, so progressive unit testing. We have progressive web apps. Yeah, and we have progressive exactly.
1: unit tests. So you know you start working on a feature, you create some tests for it, and as you're developing it, you just you're running the tests that are just related to that thing. And then maybe before you check it in or commit it, you run a kind of a, a little bit of a bigger test suite. And then, or maybe you, yeah, I guess that would be fair. And then um, maybe you have a um, a CI process that runs on 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 a on a push of commits mm-hmm. a, a certain test suite. And then maybe there's a nightly one that runs everything because that thing takes four or five hours, right?
0: Yeah. Um,
1: and then this is all about developer productivity again you can't have your developer running a four hour test suite every time they commit or push up a piece of code right Um, but the exception to that is production still like I'm saying on production don't run your big test suite run the smallest thing possible and I'm just I just think, I don't know. But well, we had maybe, a, at maybe, some point maybe he had got more bigger falls than I do. <laughs> so
0: we, we just toss it over to them and say, okay, deal with it.
1: Yeah. And that totally <laughs> is, that's, that's an incredibly broken model because they're not going to be able to fix anything.
0: No. What would happen is the deployment wouldn't go through. We'd have another day where I had to fix something, then chunk it over to them. They would run it again. And then, you know, we'd, it'd just be this ongoing cycle where a deployment took days because of that. Yeah
1: know, I mean, those were his major main uh, his main points. I mean, to me, I kind of mean there's, there's some good and bad there. I, there I, is, yeah. I mean, but overall, he's saying, you know, tests are, tests are really slow on our platform, and we're not gonna we're not gonna fix that. So uh, don't test don't test as many things. Don't test as much.
0: <laughs> I don't think that's what he's saying. What I, what I'm getting from this is that yeah, it's it sucks, but here's some things to try to mitigate yeah. why it, the, well, the suckiness of yeah. it.
1: And 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 things like integration tests, end to end tests, which basic, which as a reminder, every test in Salesforce is an end to end test there's no way to run a test that doesn't fire up the database and yeah. and all of these systems the caching systems the email systems it involves them all they are all full on complete end-to-end integration tests
0: mm-hmm.
1: let's say you want to keep i mean because that's one strategy that you have in traditional development is you create your unit tests as a separate suite so you can just run your unit tests Mm-hmm. What are well? Some people also called class tests. All they test is an individual
0: class, and they'll if the class has dependencies, they mock those with you know simple right. mocks or stubs or something. Which they I, run I really wish fast. I could do in Salesforce world, I I, I can't do that. I can't isolate I mean, my class testing because now I have to create every dependency that any other unit test that that could get run yeah. out of that. Or yeah, right. Because I mean, there's no good way to mock and abstract right. everything the right way.
1: And also, I mean, I. The other thing is weird about it's always been weird about Salesforce is you shouldn't have to run, or should you run tests in production? You should have a
0: known good build that's already been tested. Yeah, (laughs) honestly, that's if if you if you want to get down to what the right thing to do is, it would be that. I mean, builds should be idempotent. And why why couldn't all our custom code just compile down to some jar that gets put in? After, you know, because, as a build.
1: because in Salesforce builds aren't item potent; they're imperative. A build in Salesforce, what a build in Salesforce says is: add this thing, delete those two things, rename this one thing. But all those operations assume the target system is in a certain state. Yeah. Whereas in all of the software development, it doesn't. You don't assume that you're just you're replacing that existing system on every on every deployment.
0: Well, it's the fact that the data model is in the ORM is built into the language. I mean, it's that—that's the. It's problem. the arm, the settings. It's all, and I and I get it. I mean, they're a because I mean, our code could technically be compiled into a jar and chunked in there as as a module. But the 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 issue is the dependency on the validation rules, right. on
1: and, the and then data integrity right.
0: rules on exactly. workflow rules, yep.
1: and and then Salesforce would have the problem of well, how do we validate that where you were and where you saying you want to be are, are that's a valid thing, and we have a way to transition your data model changes yeah. everything from here to there, and that's. Uh, it, I mean that's. I hope that's a problem. Well, right? That's a big problem. No, because solved. that's that's a problem that you you would you know again and and other in any other kind of technology you have to solve yourself, right? right. You have to maintain your own database migration scripts, right? Yep. So when you deploy when you push a new build, if it split, you know, uh, and hopefully your script has a backup. <laughs> you know, I'm just thinking if if yeah if, if you're if you have a deployment that's split account into account and contact, right? Then not only do you do you have all the new code for that, but you have a migration script that says. Create table contact. Uh, you know, insert into contact, and you copy all these things from the account, right? Because you're splitting one table into two. And
0: but what works in the favor of that model is the fact that your testing of your code was all based on mocking that model, not direct um, dependency to that model. Yeah. It's not a direct dependency to that database,
1: right? And 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 you do have the problem. So where, where that's similar to what Salesforce has is is when you have when you're maintaining your own te- uh, your your te- your database migration scripts those do depend on the state of the database. Right? Yeah. But in the database, the way that works is you have a, like a versions table mm-hmm. and it's got a list of every version that that, where that, the, that that database has had. Basically. A version of the database. Of the version of the database. And right, right? So what happens is when you're, when you deploy, your deployment contains basically like a folder, a directory of all the data, migra- database migration scripts that have ever been created. One through 1,500, whatever, how many ever you have, right? And you, when you deploy, you have basically when the app starts up, it looks at these all these database, database migration scripts that are in the, in the deployment, mm-hmm. and then it looks in the database, and it says, oh, well, my most recent version that's been deployed to the database is 12, but in this code, it's got 15 scripts. It's got up to version 15. So it knows it has to run version 13, then it runs version 14, then it runs version 15.
0: Are we also losing out on, you know, just the Native technology of databases to be able to, to to manage all the transactions to be able to roll back on those transactions. So if you did migration, it, it's it's much easier to roll back because all I see is read back those the scripts in reverse.
1: Yeah. So that and that gets in, into the capabilities of the of the platform you're working with. For example, MySQL, which no one should use, uh, does not uh, does not allow you to wrap uh, DDL in mm-hmm. a transaction. Whereas with something like Postgres, Oracle, I think even Microsoft SQL Server. You can have DML and DDL in one giant transaction, just like and that's which is why Salesforce is never going to be able to divorce itself from Larry Ellison, mm. um, because think about what's happening when you do a big deployment to Salesforce. It's got all your stuff and your code and your tests and everything. They're doing all that in a, in an Oracle transaction, and Oracle's pretty ba- is like the most badass database platform there is, and it can handle all this stuff. And if if noth- if there's one thing that doesn't work perfectly, it can roll that whole thing back. I mean that's just kind of standard modern database stuff. But MySQL doesn't do that so don't use MySQL. Anyway, um let's talk beer for a second. What do you think of this one? It's good. I'm just done with it. I don't even know what to call. It. People ask me what this is. I wanted to call it a pale ale, but it's not really. It's a pale ale, that's, it's it's kind of like a cross between a pale ale. It's kind of a hoppy pale A ale. Vienna lager and like maybe a summer ale because it's the hops. I, I actually um I dry hopped it with cascade. Mm-hmm. But it didn't come across like almost like a, like a Sierra Nevada pale. It's w- it's really floral, like white flowers or something, and kind of a sweetness to it. Yeah. And I did I did have the, there's a sweetness to it. Yeah, the IBUs are lower on, on by design on this beer. I wanted it to be like a really easy drinking beer that that I can drink that my wife would like to
0: drink. Because to me, a pale should taste like licking the end of a bottle cap, the opposite end. Okay, that's weird. <laughs> well, when I, I a funny story, that's not funny. That's what I used to do. I used to like my dad's beer bottle cups. Because <laughs> I want to know what beer tasted like, and he would never give me one. So I was like, I'm, I'm gonna, I, I grab one and tasted the bottom of it. And then forever, that's what a pale tastes like to me.
1: Oh, man, it's just been leaking.
0: Um,
1: how are you doing? You, are you empty?
0: Almost. i will get to this other one.
1: So we'll this other let one. me tell you about this other one.
0: All right.
1: So this other Ow. one is an Imperial Stout. I made it like a month ago. It took a while. Hmm. So it's Imperial Stout. I uh, came in at about nine percent. I wanted to be higher in fact, uh, I just screwed up some calculations. I wanted to be closer to like um, well over ten, maybe 12, 13, something like that. so six
0: up- sigma black bits good screwed, screwed up the calculations.
1: It's actually truthfully, it's not my script i've I've been finding more and more bugs in the software I use mm. and and they would argue, and actually, in one case, it's not a bug, but it's just a really bad idea that confuses everyone who uses it and I discovered that by going to the forum mm-hmm. and searching like this problem I was having. And there's been several people over the course of like the past five years that have laid out this case of why they should not be doing it this way because it confuses everyone. And they're like, no, we're not going to change it. I'm like, no, seriously, you're confusing everyone. <laughs> it's a bug, okay? <laughs> but um, so I, so I made the beer when it was finished fermenting. I then transferred it onto um cacao nibs, oncho chilies,
0: Oh, that's right. Yeah. Uh, I really vanilla, want to taste this one.
1: Vanilla and uh and coffee. And I used my favorite red bird coffee from Montana. And so yeah, it sat on those for about a week. And then I kegged half of it and I racked the other half onto oak. So it's gonna I'm gonna let it oak age for th- like I don't know, three or four months. Where'd you get the oak? You just oak chips. Um cubes, actually. So they're toasted, meat, like a medium toast Hungarian oak cubes.
0: You ever gonna do a barrel aged?
1: Well, this is my version of a barrel aged, just because I don't want to deal with a barrel.
0: Mm-hmm. Hand Sorry. off. I did
1: not pour that very well.
0: No, i got like fifty percent foam, fifty percent. Yeah, I know. <laughs> hey, it's, what do you, what do you it's think like
1: about city work. It's like city
0: works.
1: Yes, eight dollars and fifty cents yeah.
0: for nine ounces of a pilsner. Yeah, and half of its foam. Mm-hmm. Um. What what do you think about foam? I mean, it, it's I don't I like foam a little bit, but I don't want most of my beer to be foam. But you have these uh, gadgets that create foam, like it's something that you're supposed to have.
1: What do you mean? What creates foam?
0: They have gadgets that will foam your beer. Well, it, then you you should drink better beer,
1: so you don't need that stupid gadget. That's what I was thinking. <laughs> Which is not the same thing as like the venturi that aerates your wine. Totally different thing.
0: But it's similar to that. It's it, they're they're trying to they're trying to aerate the beer and they create this foam as if it's something yeah. that you want to have. And I'm like, most people try to avoid the foam on the beer. I mean, yeah. it's fine to have like a little bit of foam. It's it's kind of nice. You get that kind of silky texture on the top of it. You know they say that, then, then after that, it's you want your beer. So when I pour beer,
1: I generally try to pour it in a way. I tilt the glass and try to pour it so that I am actually releasing as little of the CO2 as possible. But a lot of these beer experts, like I heard a Cicerone the other day, of saying that you should. You should at first pour from the angle, but about I want you got about half of the beer poured. Yeah. You, you should to... then pour straight down so that a lot of the f- CO two does come out, so you get a nice head on it.
0: Yeah,
1: and the and the re- and the, the you know the reasoning for that is that the beer actually has more carbonation in it than it f- should, f- uh, f- like I guess for just whatever f- f- feeling and effect or whatever. And so it's meant to be it's meant to be poured in a way that a lot of that comes out when you pour. So if you're not there if there you're not maybe letting don't it serve the beer so cold. Yeah, and if you're not letting it do that, then you're, you're trying to drink an over beer. I just don't, I don't know. I don't agree with that. I mean, it depends on the beer, I guess.
0: This is too cold. I should have taken this out earlier. Getting a lot of coffee. Yep. On the nose of it. My nose is clogged. Sorry. Yeah, we can hear. <laughs> it just started, it seemed like as soon as I smelled this, it was like triggering my <laughs> allergies. Sorry, I said like.
1: Try not to do that. Anyway, um, do we want to? Uh, so I have a couple of other topics, although I
0: guess we're probably running out of time. Yeah, we should probably wrap it up. We can do one more, and then we'll we'll do our our standard goodbyes.
1: Um, how about something from Twitter's engineering blog? And it's about um, since we're talking about testing, this will be a testing episode. And they're talking about a testing renaissance, and this really uh
0: Ugh. hit a place. Ugh. What a testing renaissance? Yeah. I don't know if I like that idea. What do you mean? I just don't know if I like that idea. You don't even know what it's about. I don't know. I like the idea of going renegade, of uh, going uh, anarchist. <laughs> no testing. <Uh-oh>. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you might like this then because they're basically saying no to unit tests. Or they actually avoid the term unit test because technically unit test is something when you're, when you're testing a unit and you've isolated right. that unit from other units. The question is, because in that an idea of a unit is very abstract. When you're talking about any given programming language or system, what is a unit? Again, some some people consider that to be a class if you're in a language that has classes. Some mm-hmm. languages don't have classes, right? So what is a unit? So they're very specific. They're talking about class tests. Um, so they said, uh, some of their teams have discarded the idea. Oh, sorry. God, I'm just making up words. Some of these teams have even discarded most of their single class tests, aka unit tests, Resulting in a test suite that's ninety five percent feature test. So when they they say feature test, they mean like it's an end to end test. Mm -hmm. So and the reason this struck home with me is because like that's what I've been talking about for a year now. I've really started backing away from unit tests or class tests. And if I've got, especially in Salesforce, where the more the more classes I create, whether they be test classes or or production classes, I mean, just creates issues. It's it's competing for collision in this collision domain.
0: So I I, I will say that I I, that does happen to me. I start bloating my class structure and my class folder, Um, but there is something a little bit satisfying about having a very granular class, being able to test it, get get a hundred percent. Again, this is my this is my dopamine hit, (laughs) getting that hundred percent, moving on to higher levels, and knowing that all my lower level classes are tested, they work well. I know they work. I'm not worried about them. There there is a certain sense of satisfaction if not. Um, the lack of anxiety with that approach. One of these days I'm going to school you on how wrong you are with your 100% test coverage. No, I, I, I don't I, have I, time for that I'm not, I'm not bound to the 100%. It's just, I, I know I have coverage. <laughs> I know I've touched all my, all my lines of code. Yeah. And it has saved me a few times. I will say that.
1: So they say, but, uh, and I got to get through this so we don't right. we don't take too long here, but um, this, he, this, whoever wrote right, this, Dean, Dean Hiller and Patrick Stover. Uh, it may be hard to believe by throwing away the single... Class tests can actually make development teams faster. So then they define what a single class does, and we've already talked about that. I agree with that. And they also talk about what a feature test is. Kind of already talked about that, but here's the advantages. So tests um, as think of tests as documentation of use cases with these what they call feature tests. Mm. Developers can easily step through the entire service, and working through the feature test gives new developers good understanding of the feature. The end purpose of the feature tests is generally much clearer than individual unit tests. It's like on, with the, I guess what he's saying with the individual unit tests, like you can't see the forest for the trees. Whereas yeah. on feature tests, like you're seeing the forest.
0: I I agree with that. I I I know I've written some really granular unit test classes, and they've they've covered all different scenarios. I've gotten I've gotten that hundred percent. Like I said, and I yeah. I know it's a flawed myth, a flawed approach to testing. Um, I I like what I'm
1: hearing. There's, so there's sometimes one um, let's say you have a, just a simple utility class maybe that that yeah. improves the string class or the day class or something right That's going to be used across multiple features, so you should write what yeah. would technically be a unit test for that class, right right? That's a different thing. Okay. Um, so he says it's a safety it's a safety net for refactoring. Properly designed feature tests provide comprehensive code coverage and don't need to be rewritten because they only use public APIs of the feature. Attempting to refactor a system that only has single class tests is often painful because developers usually have to completely refactor the test suite at the same time invalidating the safety net. Yeah. This incentivizes hacking, creating tech debt.
0: hmm
1: It so, does. so you can basically, you can refactor the feature. And as long as the feature, you've improved it. Like, so the, the the definition of refactoring is like changing the way something works while still getting the same result. You're improving the way it works, how well it's internally designed and architected while still not changing the outward appearance or functionality of the thing. Right. And if you've got a bunch of unit tests that are testing individual classes, well, your classes on the inside of that feature are going to change drastically. I mean, some are going
0: to disappear, some new ones will be added. Um well, that's you, why I end up abstracting so much, because in order to mock it properly so that I don't have a dependency on something, you know, I maybe I don't care that the account gets created. I just need an account to 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 do some stuff against. And if I can get away with it, I'll mock it with I'll, I'll Put a wrapper class around it just so I can mock that that said feature because I don't want to have to I don't have to mess with the DML. Okay. For this higher level feature that has nothing to do with accounts, it just has to have something to attached to. Yeah. In the hierarchy of, of my class model. Right. Okay. Um
1: and then the next thing is testing from the customer's point of view. So you're if you're writing features, you're literally testing from the, what the customer cares about, like that they can put in, they can fill out this form and they get this result. That's that, what a that's That's assuming
0: test is. that's assuming that you, your use cases are are right on. that The 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 use case stories or the the oh use cases, mm-hmm. proper use cases, documented use cases are correct. Well, who said you're even writing from use cases? Maybe the customer's just sitting out there telling you what they wanted to do. Well, that's flawed too because I've, I've, it's I've all, written it's tests. All, it's all flawed. I'm just I've saying. I've written tests where I'm like, okay, I just found a flaw in this logic. I hear what you're saying, but it has nothing to do with this. Like, all
1: right, if your customer says build you a thing that does this and you do what they said and then they're later like, Yeah,
0: I actually didn't want that, then that's not that's more on the customer than you at that point. Like, no, i, I had customers that say, I want it to do this and and I've built it to do that, but there was another dependency that completely invalidated that. Like there was some other code that said, Nope, it's gonna be wait, this. Wait, your
1: customer's talking about your code? I'm confused.
0: You've no, lost me. A, a customer that says, Okay, when when the status changes to to close, it needs to go and update this field on the account and set it to this. Right. But there but what we didn't realize at the time is there's another competing piece of code that actually changes it to something else. Well, if you have end to end tests, that will that will come up in the tests. Hmm. Okay. Right? That's the
1: that's that's the point of these tests. That's why I started kind of I won't say exclusively, but predominantly that this is the kind of if you look at my test code, it's eighty percent of this this kind of test.
0: No, so you're advocating end to end testing.
1: Test uh, So you're testing end-to-end behavior. With with only single class tests, the test suite may pass, but the feature can still be broken. Yeah. If a failure occurs in the interface between the modules, which is what you just talked about. I know. I'm going to shut up and let you read because every, everything, everything
0: I jump to, yeah. he talks about. So I'm going to Feature shut
1: up. tests will verify end-to-end feature behavior and catch these bugs. Um, next, you can write fewer tests. A feature test typically covers a large volume of your system than a, more than a single class test does. Um, service as pluggable library not sure even what, the, even what this is if set up correctly feature tests lead towards a service design in which the service module itself is embeddable in other applications okay maybe so you can it okay I could maybe see that you would kind of end up with these, these features almost modular mm-hmm. especially if you're testing against the features input and the features output I mean you're kind of almost defined and you've defined that contract that interface right yeah. Okay. I get it. Uh, and then test remote service failure and discovery. It's much easier to verify major failure conditions and recovery in feature tests by, let me read this again. It's much easier to verify major failure conditions and recovery in feature tests by invoking API calls and checking the response. I may have too much beer to fully understand that one, but it kind of makes sense, I guess. Yes. Anyway, the stout is kicking my butt. Yeah. It, it will kick your butt. Um, Anyway, that that's just like scratching the surface of this article. Uh, it's probably it's probably actually too long, but I was just happy to read that. Hey, I'm not the only one doing this. I mean, I've actually read I've I've read other um, other things like this before. There still are the hardcore, you know, the TDDists, which you know,
0: hey, I'd love to do TDD, but I'm a Salesforce developer, so you can't do TDD. <laughs> so 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 let me clarify because you've always said that unit testing in Salesforce is not unit testing. It's it's end to end integration what people testing. People are
1: calling unit tests. But it's end to in end integration testing. Even Salesforce evangelists, managers, directors, VPs, product developers, even what they're calling unit tests, they're not unit tests 90% of the time.
0: So, so they're talking about end to end testing yes. based on use cases. But you've always yeah. said Salesforce is not that. It's 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 end-to-end test integration testing. It's integration testing. You you specified it's integration well, testing because you're you're testing against the database and the model. There's no mocking. There's there's none of that. So
1: integration test is also one of these terms, just like unit test is that means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. I tend to think of you have your unit slash class test. That's the smallest thing. You're testing you're isolating a, a mm-hmm. class and testing it. Right. Right. And then integration test might be something where you're testing, um, oh, I don't know, your your data access, if you have a data access layer or some kind of service, right? You're testing that. But it's, you're crossing component boundaries. You might even be crossing like layers in your architecture when mm-hmm. those tests. And then a functional test or end-to-end test or feature test is like I fire up this embedded, uh, you know, servlet container and I fire in an HTTP request to it. And I look at the response and make sure I got the right
0: response out of it. I mean that is end to end, right? So we're just saying the mantra of every class should have a unit test class associated to it is wrong. I haven't been, I haven't done that in a very long time now. Yeah, Yeah. because that's what that's what I do. I mean, every well within reason. There's some data structure classes because I need statics that that don't have a unit test class because they're included in something else. But for the most part, if I create a class, I know I'm going to create a test class. So I I I, totally moved out of the way away from that. I still have really good test coverage.
1: Um I feel like my code has been better mm. and it's more maintainable and yeah. i and if, when you do need to refactor and change things it's such a simpler task to update your test than if you had done a test class for every class
0: i'm gonna explore that yeah
1: it's it's I definitely can. worth thinking about i mean I definitely this is one of those things that's complicated and i don't i don't you know profess to have all the answers I have the right way mm-hmm. i don't believe there is any right way but uh but it's Definitely, but I do think it's
0: worth exploring. I mean, because because especially right now, on
1: Salesforce, because yeah. again, these classes are precious resources in Salesforce.
0: Yeah, they are, and, and you know, you know, obviously productivity comes into play because for every class, I have to create the the unit test structure, and then I create multiple scenarios within that because I'm so focused on coverage and basically uh, throwing everything I can think of at that code to see if it's going to fail. Yeah, versus just validating that the I get the right results. And I don't know. Yeah. I, that could be good. That could be bad. It just depends on, on the situation. If you have I guess. all the
1: time in the world and all the budget, sure, yeah. write unit tests for every single thing and exercise every range of all the inputs mm-hmm. to, to, co- to try to cover or to uncover um, edge bugs, right? Mm-hmm. But I got shit to do, man. I got, I got <laughs> stuff to build. And, like, you know, people have budgets. Anyway, um, hey, Salesforce stock hit 100. Did you, uh, you getting rich off this, John? No, I'm starting to wish. You know wish who, i you know who's
0: I'm starting rich? to wish I bought at $40 because damn, that's, that's $60. Hey, you know who's getting rich, the dollar. Uh,
1: Keith Block and Alex Dayan and Mark Hawkins and, and uh, Mark Benioff. They, um, these guys have sold like, in the, just in the past 30 days, they've sold like 80% of the stock they own which is interesting. On the one hand... Well, like, Benioff can't... On the one... Well, they can't sell that much. Oh, sure. Well, can. Benioff can't. Well, he's on, I mean... He's he, still
0: he's still controlling uh, controlling a shareholder.
1: Yeah, I'm not... So, if you look at Mark Hawkins, Keith Block, Alex Down, these guys sold a vast majority of what they own in Salesforce.
0: That, that, was, that was their compensation.
1: It was, and that's <laughs> a big part of it. And, and you look at it two ways. One, well, of course they would, because it hit 100. Like, you have to yeah. take your profits at some point, right? But on the other hand, maybe they know that the gig's gonna be up soon. <laughs> no,
0: I I think you know they they obviously Salesforce when they try to trust well, these people they they half I mean we know this the compensation is based on the stock they get a bunch of stock. But John, if you if the stock is at one hundred
1: and you think it's going to two hundred, you sell just enough to cover what you need to pay for, right? To cover your personal business, you don't sell all of it or ninety percent of it.
0: I don't know. I'm just know. I'm just throwing some theories out there. That's all. Something to chew on. <laughs> <laughs> let me put my tin hat on and let me. I think about.
1: Yeah, you had it. You, why did you even take it off? You had it on earlier. <laughs> I know. <laughs> All right. What do you think of the final? Final. Uh, you get the chili on this beer on the
0: finish. When it, it's so cold.
1: Yeah, I should have brought this
0: out earlier. If it was warmer, I would. Yeah. But as it does warm up, I do get it on on the on the roof of my oh. mouth and a little bit towards the mm-hmm. back. Not the. I've had I've had beers with with uh, mm. unexpected chili in it where it didn't say it had chili in it, but I thought it had chili in it because it hit the back of my throat. Nothing
1: worse than unexpected chili. It's nothing worse than things hitting the back of your throat when you, when you don't expect them to.
0: Yeah, when, when you least expect them to, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I, I don't get that kind of chili, but I, I do get it. I do get the flavor of it, that kind of peppery, you know, kind of flavor yeah. on it. Yeah. People
1: think... Really? By the, by the it, way, it's a little bit sweeter than I thought it would be. Well, wait, the Minus version will probably be even more sweet than this mm. just because it's going to be bigger. But I'm on a... On a I'm on Untapped now. <laughs> See, <this> is, <laughs> it's the chili's getting to me, <laughs> tickling my tongue. <laughs> so if uh, people want to look me up, if you just look, um, I, I'm, I'm called Ross BP and CP. And if you just on Untapped, if you just look up Ross BP, it, com- it comes right up.
0: I just said Ross PP.
1: I've got like four of my most recent beers in there, four or five of them. I didn't, I didn't like back enter all of the previous ones, just like the ones that I still have on tap.
0: Did you create a new? untapped account yeah i've got a brewery on there now
1: ross bp and cp stands for brew pub and cocktail parlor
0: (laughs) did you ever name your your brew did you ever come up with a name yeah this
1: one is chocolate heat no i mean oh Oh, ross bp and cp is the name of my brewery oh i know well i couldn't come up with anything else i went through a thousand different things and just everything was either taken or i didn't like it or whatever and I'm like, well, you know, I like to brew beer. I like to cook food. We like to make. We like to have little parties and make cocktails and stuff. And it, hey, I'm Ross BP and CP man. That's what it is.
0: All right, I'll try to find you. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. Back matter. Um, uh, thank, thank you for sending us uh, topics. Those, yeah, always those are help. Yep. Those are great discussions, Thanks especially guys. since it's things we know you guys want to hear about. So
1: there's the if you haven't signed up and you're going to be at Dreamforce and you want to try to do this. By the way, did you know the art? So I'm talking about our the happy that Yeah. You know, um, it's on this, again, once again, once again, conflicts with the MVP meetup.
0: Does it? Yep. So anyway, but if you're not an MVP and you want to go to our meetup. Um, it, you well, just, no, here, here's the thing. You have to choose good day, sir, or MVP. Yeah. I, know. I, already, well, know, I already know what the decision is. It's MVP. I, yeah. <laughs> because, well, and here's why. Um, they have more alcohol at the MVP yeah. party. Yeah, they have they have a full usually usually the few times I went or the one time I went uh, full bar. Yeah. So uh,
1: yeah. Yep. Now smart in Salesforce we, all we have to do is liquor these people up, and they'll say good <laughs> things about us for a year. That's that's a pretty good deal. Anyway, yeah, if you're going to be in Dreamforce and you want you know want to try to go to the meetup, um, just go to our website sirpodcast dot com. Click on happy click hour. on happy hour. Um, and also we have the Slack community, which is fun and uh, informational. We help, we laugh, we we drink, we do you know. The things that communities do, and that you can also get to that on our website. Just click community.
0: Oh, it's probably the only social media that put, I'm on
1: right now. Put in your address and uh, email address, and John will add you. Yep. What else? Share us, please, on the twitters, socials, reviews, us. Yeah, we don't ever get reviews anymore. I mean, very rarely. That's sad.
0: I like funny reviews. We're Just not. G- give me something to play. I'm with, start, guys. John, I'm starting
1: to think we're not going to get rich off this podcast thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs> we're never going to get rich. What are you talking about? Anyway. All right. I think I'm done. I'm going to take one last sip. One last sip. Uh And to that I say good day, sir. (sighs) You get nothing. You lose. Good
1: day, sir.